This message was presented at the GYC 2015 conference called Chosen Faithful in Louisville, Kentucky. For other resources like this, visit us online at www.gycweb.org. Good evening, friends. You know, many, many people this weekend will probably come up here and call you GYC. But to me, this evening, you are my friend. I know that there's, there's a big stage up here. There's beautiful flowers, all of the lights. But in many ways, in all ways, the people that you see up here are really very ordinary people, just like you. I have the privilege of introducing you to our speaker this evening. She's someone that I've known for a very, very long time. It actually struck me just today that I've almost known her for half of my life. Known her for a very long time, and she's someone that has grown very near and dear to my heart. Near and dear to my heart because we share a heart passion to see the majesty and the glory of God return into the lives and the hearts of this generation, to return into my life and into my heart. I simply want to share with you some of the heartbeat that I know pulses through her veins. It's one that pulses through mine as well. First of all, she has a heart, a deep sincerity, and a heart for the gospel of Jesus Christ. A heart for the work of God here in this world. And a heart that is touched for the weak and the broken, for the orphan and for the trafficked. It's a heart that pulses with the heart of Christ as he looks onto a broken world. She also has a heart for sacrifice. Many of you may not know, in fact, probably most of you do not know, the sacrifice that she has gone through simply to stand on this stage in front of you. She has a heart to lay everything on the altar to see our Savior lifted up. And she also has a heart in a generation where, um, where there is so much confusion, in a generation where we have strayed so far from the image of God and humanity, she has a heart for biblical femininity, to stand as a woman in an age where we hardly know what it means to truly be a woman and to be a man. She caught this vision at a very young age, and I can truly tell you that I know no one that that has the ability to honor and to respect and to build those in her life, especially the men in her life, and to lift up the cross of Jesus Christ. She, as I've already mentioned, she's someone that is very near and dear to our hearts and, and to, be, to my heart. And to be very honest with you, um, we, sh we share this heart pulse, this passion. Honestly, we, we are somewhat tired of, of stages and lights and pretty flowers and, and beautiful minute, music oh, that the glory of God would come into this place, that the Spirit of God would fall on our hearts, that we would truly see him face to face. And so this evening I, I introduce to you Not a president, but a princess. And not just any princess, but my princess and my beloved fiance, Natasha Neblet. I'd like Natasha to come up onto the stage now. 
Hey, sweetheart. <laughs> sweetheart, we share a passion for the vision of seeing God's majesty return to this world. And I challenge you this morning, I mean this evening, as you speak, be not afraid of their faces. For it is the Lord our God that goes with you. He is your strength. I also challenge you to be bold. We live in a generation that, frankly, we're tired of um, politically correct speeches. We want to hear the undiluted word of God. I challenge you to be bold and to stand and share the word with strength and with power. And I challenge you to humility. Because ultimately, we are simply dust in his hands. You and I are simply here to wash the feet of those we come in contact with. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, I pray that your Holy Spirit would come and wash over my beloved fiance as she shares your word this evening. Father, I pray that you would take our minds off of any form of production and stages and lights and that you would face, that we would see your face, Amen. that your Holy Spirit would enter this building and enter our hearts with power and with glory that we would go from this place knowing that you are our almighty God and with a love that is built. Father, I pray that you would put your words into Natasha's mouth, that you would give her boldness to speak your word, and that she would be given humility to forever stand humbly before your throne. We pray that you would Take each one of our hearts and soften them this morning, this evening. Soften them before you because all of us are simply dust in your hands. Amen. May we see your face. In Jesus' name, amen. amen. Love you. Hey, the sweetie, huh? I'm marrying an amazing man. Well, welcome to GYC, everyone. It is so good to see uh, the work of a whole year uh, coming to reality in the faces that are in this room and GYC actually taking place. It's such a blessing um, to know that how much we have leaned on God and prayed hours and hours worth of prayer um, is coming to reality and God will bless. I know he will. Something about my fiancé and his very kind introduction. Something about GYC and my fiancé and myself. Two years ago, right before Orlando in 2013, the day before GYC Orlando began, he asked to court me. So I was like all, you know, surprised and everything throughout Orlando. And then one week before Phoenix last year, uh, he asked me to marry him. And now in 45 days from today, we're going to get married on Valentine's Day. So <laughs> I'm a blessed girl, very, very, very blessed girl. He has put a lot into supporting me, and I'm so thankful, and my family as well. All of my family is here tonight, um, including my sister and brother-in-law and niece and nephew. They're missionaries to Africa, and last year they were in Africa uh, while we were at Phoenix. But this year, because of my wedding in uh, 45 days, their schedule has changed, and they're here at GYC. And that means so much to me and my parents and my brothers and all those who have sacrificed so much um, to support me um, over this last term as being president of GYC. And I'll have to be honest with you, the last several months, I have been thinking, and a question has been going over and over again in my mind, and that is, if I never had the chance to speak with any of you again, what would I want to be sure I had communicated to you tonight? Because this is the opening night of GYC, but it is also, in many respects, my 
closing, um, my closing message to you because after a wonderful term of being president as UIC, I'm getting married and so I'm stepping down as president and being replaced by an extremely, extremely capable president and extremely capable team. And I am so excited for where God will lead UIC under Moise's leadership. But I'm stepping down and so this is my last opportunity to share with you um, as president of GYC. And so I've been thinking about, you know, thinking about the last term, thinking about my years before that as VP of Logistics for GYC, thinking about this movement, which has become so special to me, so precious to me, thinking about our God. What would be what I want to share with you if it's my last opportunity to share? So that's what I want to talk to you about tonight. Tonight's message is going to be quite a personal one for me. And don't, don't expect a big professional presentation. Don't even expect a comprehensive treatise of the subject. I'm just going to be sharing with you what has been going through my mind for the last couple months and what God has really been pressing on my heart as I've been coming to the, to the very end of my presidency, but by no means coming to the end of my involvement in this movement and my belief in it and my prayers for it. So before I get in and share, let's have one more prayer. Heavenly Father, you know I've not had as much quiet today as I would have liked to have had and as much time to reflect on my message as I like, but ultimately, Father, this does not need to be me. In fact, it had better not be me. It needs to be you. And you can use me whether I am feeling all collected or if I'm not. So I pray that you would put your hand upon me and your words in my mouth and that I would just beseech in Christ's stead and that all of me would be put out of the way and that all of you would come to the front. Give me your spirit, I pray, and give your spirit to all those that are here. In Jesus' name, amen. So it's kind of anticlimactic, technically, to share the point of my message at the very beginning, you know, before I've even gotten into it. But I'm going to tonight because I don't have, <laughs> I don't have time in my presentation to just kind of talk away before I get down to my real point. So I'm just going to tell you the point of my message right now, and that's love. Love for God. And really, actually, tonight is kind of part one of my seminar because this has been on my mind so much. You know, there, our unofficial like condensed mission statement as GYC, because all of us in this room are GYC, is that we are a movement of young people on a mission to take the three angels' messages to the entire world in this generation this generation. And while, of course, we cannot actually um, measure a spiritual thing by earthly measures, yet at the same time, it is a very defined goal. The three angels' messages, entire world, this generation. It's a very defined goal. And so as I have been president of GYC, I have often spent a lot of time thinking about, are we accomplishing what we set out to do? Are we taking the three angels' message to, to the entire world in this generation? Elder Tricartan was up here talking earlier, and he's going to have a seminar about the Middle East. Has GYC done anything about the Middle East? Have we done anything about India, the 1040 window? I mean, it's like the need is so enormous. And what we're actually saying is that, the th that every single person in all of those countries will hear the three angels' messages and the messages that we have as Seventh-day Adventists in this generation, us, so that we're not going to get old and die and then our kids get, you know, whatever before Jesus comes. We're actually saying, no, that's going to happen before then. And I think, what's, gonna, what's it going to take for that really to take place? And of course, we, we can't always see the movement of God on, um, on people's hearts. But as we look around us, we say, you know what, the need is extremely great. What's it going to take for us to actually get this done? And I'm convinced that love is the one ingredient 
that we need more of for this to get done. Not just the job of taking the three angels' messages to the entire world in this generation, but also lack of love is involved in lack of true conversion, in doubt, in complaining, in lack of unity, in pretty much everything that is involved <laughs> in our lives and in the church, in lack of purity, backsliding, unfaithfulness, criticism. And love is what took Christians into Colosseums to be torn of lions and to be lighted on the streets of Rome and at the same time took the gospel to the entire world in one generation. And love gave people a completely different perspective. Listen, I've been stewing over this story for two months now. I was reading in Fox's Book of Martyrs, and you know what? I don't meet very many people who like to read Fox's Book of Martyrs, but I would strongly encourage occasionally to pick up and read a bit of it because it sets forth Christianity at its strongest, at its best. It's amazing. This is a story from Fox's Book of uh, Fox's Book of Martyrs, it was right at the beginning of the St. Bartholomew Massacre, which was the, one of the most infamous massacres of Protestants. And the, uh, the Prince of Navarre was a champion of Protestantism, and so the king, in an effort to take him down, artfully arranged for a marriage between the prince and the king's sister, the princess. And um, all of her professions of love for the Prince of Navarre was just an artful way to bring him down. Isn't that sick? And um, so picking up what Fox's Book of Martyrs has to say, they had like a week's worth of celebrations over this new marriage and everything. And four days after their celebrations for their marriage had ended, picking up quoting uh, Fox's Book of Martyrs, four days after this, the prince, as he was coming from the council, was shot in both arms. He then said to Maure, who was a family friend because he had been the pastor of the prince's deceased mother. He said to Maure, oh my brother, I do now perceive that I am indeed beloved of my God, since for his most holy sake I am wounded. Although Vidam advised him to fly, yet he abode in Paris and was soon after slain by Bemgis, who afterward declared he never saw a man meet death more valiantly than the admiral. I mean, what kind of reaction is that? He comes out, this is a week out, you know, ju he's just gotten married and he realizes in this moment when he comes out of the council and is shot in both arms, this woman was a total joke. The king was a total joke. They arranged this whole thing to take this man's life. And what is his reaction? Is it anger? Is it, you know, frustration? Is it anything like that? No. His reaction is, I do now perceive I am beloved of my God since for his most holy sake I am wounded. And a few days later he's killed for good, you know, the, the job was finished a few days later. And even the man that killed him said he had never seen a man meet death more valiantly. That is the power of Christianity, and that is the Christianity I want in my life. And you know what? That kind of Christianity is not caused by having it in our minds that we're going to be that way and that if we get wounded, we're going to... It just does not produce it, that kind of determination. That is produced only by love. It changes the way we think. It changes our perspective entirely. It makes people unearthly. The world was not worthy of these people because of love. So let's turn to our theme verse, Revelation 17 and verse 14. This is where our theme comes from, our theme of called and chosen and faithful. These shall make war with the Lamb. This is talking about the beast and the dragon and all those. Make war with the Lamb and the Lamb shall overcome them. Can anyone say amen? For he is Lord of lords and King of kings, and they that are with him are called and chosen and faithful. And we're going to be digging into what that means to be called and chosen and faithful this weekend, and it's a profound thing. We're going to be digging into the concept of the remnant. Millennials don't like the concept of the remnant, but you know what? I'm a millennial, and it's in the Bible, and so I love it. But what I want to focus on tonight 
is those that are with him. Those that are with him. All this earthly power, earthly and the, all the powers of earth and hell are against the lamb, but then there's this little company that are with the lamb. And my question is, who is with him tonight? Who is with him tonight? Obviously, I'm getting married in 45 days. And so because I'm getting married in 45 days, I've given a lot more thought to the two wedding vows. For better or for worse? We're all very familiar with these words. In sickness and in health. To love and to cherish. Forsaking all others, keep you only to him till death do us part. Powerful words. What I am saying, what I will be saying by saying those words in 45 days when I get married to my beloved Paul, what I will be saying is, you know what? It does not matter. If his life, if he is, if he is wealthy or if he is destitute, if, he, if his life goes well or it doesn't go well, if we have health or if, God forbid, some lingering illness comes that, that lasts for years and years of suffering and slow loss, what I am saying by saying wedding vows in 45 days is it does not matter if it's going well or if it's not going well. I cast in my lot with him. He cast in his lot with me. Why? Is it just because I'm like, I'm going to do this. If it kills me, I'll be with him. Is, it, is that kind of... I mean, no. No. Why? Because I love him because I love him, and it is love that makes me say that if his life is better or if his life is worse, I'll be with him. It's not just some intellectual assent. Yes, I will admit that marriages have happened on earth that were just intellect, you know, people going to the, the altar knowing fully well they should not be there. But that's not the case now, and it should not be the case in Christian marriage. The case is I'm casting in my lot with Paul because I know in my mind, and I know in my heart. Love. And you know what? Marriage is supposed to be an example of our relationship with Christ. That for better or for worse, for richer or for poorer, and Christ is never poor, but sometimes on earth, it is not profitable to follow him in society's eyes. It's not just rawhead knowledge. Richard Wormbrand, um, who was tortured for 14 years for the name of Christ and never once was willing to renounce his faith, never once bent. When he came out of, out of jail, somebody asked him, basically, how do you withstand 14 years of torture? Many of those were in solitary confinement. And this was his comment. If the heart is cleansed by the love of Christ, and if the heart loves him, you can resist all tortures. He continues on to say, what would a loving bride not do for a loving bridegroom? What would a loving mother not do for her child? If you love Christ, this is him quoting him still, if you love Christ as Mary did, who had Christ as a baby in her arms, if you love Christ as a bride loves her bridegroom, then you can resist such tortures. God will judge us not according to how much we have endured, but how much we could love. I'm a witness, he says, concluding, for the Christians in communist prisons that they could love. They could love God and man. Right now, it's pretty easy to be a half-hearted Christian. If we give our heart partially to Christ, or if we choose not to, if we decide to ride the fence, or if we decide to be all in for him, or decide to be not all in for him, doesn't make that much difference. But time is, the time is soon coming when being a half-hearted Christian is not going to be enough. When half-hearted Christians will find the going too rough to keep sailing. Remember the... the uh, parable of the pearl of great price, where the merchant man finds the goodly pearl, and he goes and sells everything. Everything. Same thing with the parable of the treasure in the field. He finds the treasure in the field, and he goes and sells 
everything to buy that field and the rest of the world's looking at him like, what are you doing? Why are you selling your house? Why are you selling all your livestock at the time? Why are you selling all your earthly assets to buy a field? Because he knew the value of the field. Why are you selling everything you have to buy the pearl? Because he knew the value of the pearl. Why am I going to forsake all others and marry Paul? Because of the value of Paul. Why would we forsake the world for Jesus? Because of the value of Jesus. Who is with him tonight? Who is standing here and wondering the pearl or the world? Ah, both. Actually, not both. The time is coming where we will sell the world for the pearl or we will sell the pearl for the world. One of the two. One of my favorite books is Pilgrim's Progress, and one of my favorite quotes in Pilgrim's Progress is when Christian is talking to this guy called Byens, who wants both, God and the world. And he's like, man, these go together just great. I'm going to live my life with both. And Christian's statement to him is, if you go with us, you must go against wind and tide. You must own religion in his rags as well as in his silver slippers. You must stand by him too when bound in irons as when he walks the streets with applause. Who tonight will follow Christ in his rags as well as in his silver slippers? Who will stand by him when everybody's applauding and wants him to be king after the feeding of the 5,000? And who will stand by him when he's hanging on the cross? This is not a mere intellectual ascent. It's a level of bonding that is fused to the person of Christ. So much so that you would rather die than hurt him. And I have slowly learned what that level of love means by being in a relationship and getting married. And suddenly it's like, what would I rather do? Be tortured or turn Paul over to torture? Ah, suddenly the issues are clarified. Love makes a difference. It makes a difference in the way we live our lives. So I want to share... Um, Let me share this quote, and then I want to share three things that the Lord has been putting on my heart over the last probably three months especially on the subject of learning love for God. And this is not, kind of, this is not a comprehensive study of the subject by any means, but just three things that God has really been pressing into my heart. This quote first, true holiness, this is, comes from Christ's Object Lessons, true holiness is wholeness in the service of God. Love must be the principle of action. Love is the underlying principle of God's government in heaven and earth, and it must be the foundation of the Christian's character. The thought of his honor and his glory will come before anything else. This is the religion of Christ. Anything short of this, she says, is a deception. Pretty strong words, huh? So I want to share with you three things that God has really been pressing into my heart. Because I'm like, Lord, oh, have you found that just the world is set up to not let us have love like this for Christ? To, to esteem him, yes, and think highly of him and, and want to worship him, want to serve him and everything, but, but to, to love him consumingly and passionately and with every single thing we have, just the world is set up, we, you know, we can't see him and the world is set up to make the eye of faith grow very dim. So have you ever wondered, oh, I esteem him and I want love for him, but I know I don't quite have it. If you have had that, I want to share with you three things that God has really pressed in my heart. And the first one is that no one will love Christ passionately until they know how much they need him. Turn with me in your Bible to Luke 7. <clears throat> Luke chapter 7, starting in verse 36. And this is the story of the woman who poured the alabaster on Christ's feet. Mary Magdalene. I'm not going to read it all for the sake of time because it's going on quickly, but 
we know the story. Christ is invited to this feast. He comes in, he's eating there, and then this woman, Mary Magdalene, comes in, and she cracks the thing over his feet, and she's wiping his feet with her hair and crying, and the smell goes through the whole room, and everybody starts muttering about this woman and not what kind of waste this is because that's a whole year's worth of stuff that she just poured on his feet, and it's gone now. We should have sold it, give it to the poor. And then Christ um, asks this question of Simon, who is the host of the feast. And he tells them this story. He said, you know, there was a certain creditor, there were two people that owed him, one 500 pence, the other 50. And when they had nothing to pay, he frankly forgave them both. Which one loves more? And Simon's like, oh yeah, well, the one that owned 500, right? And Jesus says, you see this woman? And Jesus begins to compare the actions of Mary Magdalene and her gratitude to Simon. Now, let's compare their two actions, okay? Mary Magdalene, as we know, had been what? A prostitute in Magdala, a Roman party town. Had seen very much the underside of life. Seven demons Christ cast out of her. Seven. And at the end of all of that, her love for Christ was so intense that she poured out her whole life savings, basically, on his feet. Simon, on the other hand, is this Pharisee, and we know from the desire of ages that it was his sin that actually set Mary on the trajectory that ended her up on the streets of Magdala. But Simon is over here thinking, feeling pretty good about himself. He had been, he'd been healed of leprosy even. He should have a lot of reason to have tremendous gratitude for Christ, but he's looking at Mary and he's like, oh, that woman, have mercy. If Christ knew who she was, he wouldn't let her touch her. When Simon was in as desperate need of Christ's forgiveness as Mary was, but he thought himself not to need it. And so what is he doing? criticizing both Mary's conduct and Christ's conduct for allowing this to take place. Mm. Jesus, on the other hand, is like, <clears throat> Mary, washing his feet, perfume. Simon, no perfume, no water, no nothing, no kiss. Both of them needed him just as desperately. One knew she needed him, and the other one did not. And I'm convinced that this is one of the dreadful downfalls of my generation and of myself. It's like, oh, I know I need him. I do realize I need God, but do I know how desperately I need God? Do I understand the desperation of my own soul poverty? That I am nothing without him. Nothing. Going back to, to Pilgrim's Progress, one of my other favorite parts in Pilgrim's Progress is um, when they're going to the enchanted ground and Hopeful is sharing his conversion and how he decided to go on pilgrimage. And Ellen White says that Pilgrim's Progress lays out the path to the celestial city so clearly that thousands have been saved through it. Anyway, Hopeful is sharing his conversion story and he talks about how he was, oh, he loved sinful company. He loved doing all the things of this world. And after a while, he came under conviction that that was wrong. And so he turned away from it and he decided he was going to do this right. So he started weeping for his sins. He started fasting. He started praying and everything. And for a while, he thought he was pretty good, pretty well off. And then he said he started reading such verses as, all our righteousnesses are like filthy rags. And by the works of the law shall no man be justified. And after a while, just, just quoting Pilgrim's Progress here, he said, for a while I thought myself well, after he had been weeping, weeping for his sin and having all his prayer and all that. For a while I thought myself well, but at the last all my trouble came tumbling upon me again, and that over the neck of all my reformations. There were several things that brought it upon me, especially such things as, sayings as these, all our righteousnesses are filthy rags. By the works of the law shall no flesh be justified. When ye have done all these things, say, we are unprofitable. And this is his conclusion. I believed that was true that had been told me, to wit, that without the righteousness of this Christ, all the world could not save me. 
and therefore thought I with myself, if I leave off, I die, but I can but die at the throne of grace. How many of us have decided we don't want to live the life of the world, and so we're going to reform our lives? And we do reform our lives, and then we think ourselves well when we have nothing to commend ourselves to God. What have we done to deserve his favor? What have we done to make him think that we're wonderful? Nothing, nothing, and yet his love is still stretching out to us. And if we knew how desperately we needed him, if we knew that without the righteousness of this Christ, this one Christ, there is no other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. Without the righteousness of this Christ, all the world cannot save us. Tonight, in this very room, we have one option for salvation, only one, and that is Jesus Christ. Without him, we are all doomed, all doomed. How much do we realize it? And when we know how much we need him and that he is there and that we can run to him and find shelter in his, under his wings, then we will love our Savior when we know how much we need him. But as long as we think ourselves well, Jesus is a wonderful buddy, but one of the things God has been pressing upon my heart is, Natasha, you do not know how much you need me. You still have that little idea running in your mind as much as I strive to renounce it, and God has been working in my life, and I thank him that I know so much more tonight how much I need him than I knew two years ago. But without the righteousness of this Christ, all the world cannot save us. Second part is communing to love. Deuteronomy 6, 4 and 5. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one Lord. Thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thine heart and with all thy soul and with all thy might. Christ again quotes this verse in the New Testament and he says, this is the first and great commandment. The word first primary, foremost in time, place, order, or importance. And the word great in the Hebrew, megas. Probably not pronouncing it right. Excuse me, all of you Hebrew scholars. But in other words, it's the, it's the word from what we get the word mega from. In other words, Christ is like, this is the, the one that's primary in place, order, and importance. This is the mega commandment. Love God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, with all your strength. All of them love God. This is the mega commandment. Then the second one is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. And when we see that we're struggling to love our neighbor as ourselves, in the world and in the church, we can look to the fact that the first and mega commandment, love the Lord with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, with all your strength, has somehow not gotten deep into our hearts yet. Communing to love. We've lost the art of loving God. I would have told you that two years ago from an intellectual perspective, but I'm going to tell you that tonight from my personal experience. I can tell you with a resounding, resounding yes that we do not know really what it means to be in love with God. Let me give you a very practical example of what it means to be in love, okay? I, I would know. So about two or three months ago, my fiance was at a conference. And I was not there, I was at home. But he was gonna be on stage that night and I wanted to watch, it was being live streamed. And, but it was at the same time as my workout and everything. So I was like, ah, I'll just put it on my iPhone, put it up on my dresser, I was working at my room. I'll just work out and I'll be able to hear what he has to say on stage, it'll be great. So I put my iPhone up on my dresser and I'm listening to it. And everything else, all the other things were happening and I was just working out. And suddenly this familiar voice comes onto my phone. And I tell you, I did not have time to reason through my reaction. I whirled up off the ground. I had been doing a ton of ab exercises, core exercises. And I whirled up off the ground, snatched my phone off the desk, and I was looking at it like this. And then I thought, wait, that's kind of weird. I mean, the f just calm down and go work out. It's not going to change. He's a thousand miles away. It's not going to change if I'm looking at it like this or if I'm not. 
How often when we hear the, the name of Jesus being spoken, do we immediately react and want to know what he has to say? When the Bible is there, how do we rush to our room and we're like, what does it say? That's what it means to be in love. That's what it means to be in love with Jesus Christ. That when we hear his name being spoken, we perk up. It's like, what did you have to say? Why do we expect that of people in love with people? And we don't expect it of people in love with God. What is wrong with the way we think about it? Well, it's because we don't have, we don't have examples before us of martyrs going to their death and singing in the flames. In the Dark Ages, their way of killing men was mostly burning them at the stake. Their way of martyring women was burying them alive. And, and if you read um, back in Fox's Book of Martyrs and such, they say that the women went to their graves to be buried alive in their best clothes and with a smile on their face and a song in their, you know, singing. Why? Because they loved him. They loved the one for whom they were going to die. That is love. Song of Solomon says that love is stronger than death, and it is true. It is true. Commune to love. We have lost the art of loving God. When it comes to my family or my fiance, I want to know what makes them happy. I want to know their likes and dislikes. I want to understand them because why? I love them. And it, is, it works the exact same way with God. We want to know him. We want to know his likes and dislikes. We want to know what pleases him, what satisfies him, what brings him glory because we love him when we love him. What does it, what does it take to make God feel loved by the human race? There's a story of a, a man who deeply loved God, and he loved to pray. And he said to his servant one day, I'm going to go pray for half an hour. Come and get me when, when, um, when half an hour is over. So the man went off to his room to pray. Half an hour later, the servant went, looked in, and the man was so wrapped in prayer, praying out loud, and he was so wrapped in prayer that the servant felt really bad about interrupting him. So he thought, I'll just give him a little more time. I'll come back later. So the servant went away. A while later, the servant comes back, looks in. The man's still completely absorbed in communication. I better come back in a little bit. This continued on until three hours later, the servant was like, now this is awkward because he told me to get him after half an hour. And it's been three hours, and he goes there, and the man's still lost in communion with God, but the servant felt like he had to interrupt him, and so he's like, you master, you know, it, it, it's time. And the man turned to him, and he said, oh, half an hour goes so quickly when I'm communicating with him. I want that experience where after three hours... I think, oh, half an hour goes by so quickly when I'm in the presence of Jesus Christ, the one, the only one that can save me. How often do we commune not to tell God, oh, this happened and it was terrible, and oh, God, please make that person be more agreeable. And Lord, this happened and, and uh, such and such, and hey, please, I need help with this test and all oh, finances, Lord. Oh, my finances. How often do we go to God to just pepper with him and treat him like a gumball machine? Quarter, gumball. Quarter, gumball. Quarter, gumball. Pray, answer. Finances, money. That person, deal with them. And instead, start thinking of the fact that God loves us so much, he would love to just communicate with us exclusively for the purpose of just loving him. How would my family or Paul like it if the only reason I would talk to them was just be like, honey, fix this. Honey, do that. Some marriages probably are like that, but that's not, they're not vibrant. Communion just to love. This is the second thing God has been pressing on my heart. I'm running out of time. God has been pressing on my heart. Natasha, Sometimes 
come to me just to love me. Sometimes come to me just so I can love you. But ultimately, oh, let me, let me share this. <clears throat> we find this same principle in the Bible. For instance, Moses, right after the scenario with the golden calf, it's awful. He's, the tabernacle's removed from the camp. He's outside in the tabernacle, away from camp, interceding for these people. And go to Exodus and read it, because as he's there interceding for these people, you can, you can actually watch in the, in, the, in the account. Moses becoming more and more distracted just from the people and more and more just in, <laughs> enchanted with God until he's finally like, all he can think about is God's glory. He's like, I just beseech you, show me your glory. How would you like to be distracted from the things of this world by God? Same thing with the beloved John. While everybody else was out hiding behind bushes, John was at the foot of the cross. Why? Because he thought this was supposed to happen? No. Because he loved him. Because he loved him. Commune to love. There was a Waldensian martyr in the Dark Ages who was a pastor, and he was caught. And he was told that his wife and his son were going to be killed and that he would be killed with all the perfected tortures of the Inquisition if he did not renounce his faith in Christ. Jesus or the, the Waldensian pastor's response to his torturers was, 10,000 deaths of such a kind would be too few to express my love for him. How do we fall in love with him? Ultimately, it's knowing how much he loves you. Jeremiah three fourteen says, Turn, O backsliding children, saith the Lord, for I am married to you. What would possess the God of the universe to look at stubborn humanity and be like, I'm married to you for better or for worse, for richer or for poorer, to love and to cherish. I'll keep myself only to you throughout eternity. God, Jesus Christ, never gives up his humanity, forsaking all others keep himself to the human race till death do us part and not even death can part us. God is in love with the human race for some inexplicable reason. How much do we love him in return? Why are we, all dis why are we discussing this? GYC's mission statement, like I mentioned at the beginning, a movement of young people on a mission to take the three angels' messages to the entire world in this generation. That means that we're going to see all the prophecies of Revelation fulfilled in this generation. That's, what, that's our goal. That's what, we, that's what we want. Obviously, God is in control of all these events, but that's what we're saying we desire. And only one thing is going to suffice to accomplish it, and that is when our hearts are so lost with love for God that nothing else can suffice. Some of you may ask, why are you telling so many martyr stories? I told you at the beginning. It's because I love how clear, crystal clear Christianity is in the lives of these people. So I have one more to close off with you, for you. The Waldensians during the Dark Ages were, well, they were persecuted for a millennium, right? So it was many, many times when they had to run for their homes. But this particular time, their persecutors chose the dead of winter to evict them from their homes. Cold and icy were the peaks. This is J.A. Wiley, History of the Waldenses. Cold and icy were the peaks that looked down upon this miserable troop who were now fording the torrents and now struggling up the mountain tracks. But the heart of the persecutor was colder still. True, an alternative was offered them. They might give up their faith. Did they avail themselves of it? The historian ledger informs us that he had a congregation of well nigh 2,000 persons and that not a man of them accepted the alternative. I can well bear them this testimony, he observed, seeing I was their pastor for 11 years, and I knew every one of them by name. Judge, reader, whether I had not cause to weep for joy as well as for sorrow when I saw 
that all the fury of these wolves could not, was not able to influence one of these lambs and that no earthly advantage could shake their constancy. And when I marked the traces of their blood on the snow and ice over which they dragged their lacerated limbs, had I not cause to bless God that I had seen accomplished in their poor bodies what remained of the measure of the sufferings of Christ, and especially when I beheld this heavy cross borne by them with a fortitude so noble. This is the Christianity that can and will come back to this generation. Not because we will will it. Not because we're like, pull ourselves up by our own bootstraps and decide that we are going to renounce everything of the world and that we are going to go spill our blood on the field so that it's not going to be what does this. It's going to be understanding the passionate love of God for my soul. That for better or for worse, he's committed to me. For richer or for poorer, he's married to me. He's dedicated to me. He will never leave me or forsake me. And without the righteousness of this Christ, all the world cannot save me. And therefore, I turn my life over to him. At the beginning of GYC, as GYC is starting, I want to challenge all of you to reflect just how much do you love God? How much is your heart turned over for him? How much are you willing to trade the pearl, pardon me, trade the world for the pearl? Is not the lamb that was slain worthy to receive the reward of his inheritance? This message was recorded at the GYC 2015 conference called Chosen Faithful in Louisville, Kentucky. GYC, a supporting ministry of the Seventh-day Adventist Church, seeks to inspire young people to be Bible-based, Christ-centered, and soul-winning Christians. To download or purchase other resources like this, visit us online at www.gycweb.org.